Over the course of his career, John Meacham has been a journalist, a TV pundit, and a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, having written books about everybody from Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson to George H.W. Bush and John Lewis. But last week, Meacham did something he never expected he'd do. He spoke at the Democratic National Convention that nominated Joe Biden for president. We'll talk to Meacham about how and why he came to give that speech, and we'll get his historian's take on the Trump presidency on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Well, I know we have been looking forward for some time to having a Meacham on the pod. Uh, we all spent uh, so many years working with Meacham at Newsweek and um, listening to him weigh in and issue pronouncements on what went in the magazine and what did not. It's uh, going to be a good opportunity to... Um, have the shoe on the other foot and ask him some questions. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in some ways, it was a surprise to all of us to see John Meacham, you know, not only giving a primetime remarks at the Democratic National Convention, but actually compared to a lot of very prominent Democrats, he had far more time than most of them, including people like AOC. I mean, the yeah. New York Times, a little graphic showing um, how much time individual speakers had represented by the size of their heads. And Meacham had a pretty big head because he got close to, I think, about five minutes. But on the other hand, it's not that surprising. And let me, here's why. Meacham has had some very, very powerful stuff, which is that ability to look at current events and politics today and put it through this uh, very uh, interesting and kind of brilliant context of, of, of our history. And I saw, as his deputy for close to five years, politicians both on the on the left and the right, Republicans and Democrats, kind of just eating that up. They wanted to talk to Meacham. They wanted to understand how to put uh, today's events in the context of American history. A lot of them saw themselves as amateur historians them, you know, themselves, but a lot of them also wanted to understand how to kind of communicate to the American people the things that are going on right now. And so, you know, I would sometimes come to the office and there would be a senator waiting outside John's office, sometimes a Democrat, sometimes a Republican, because they just read his latest biography and they wanted to talk to him about it. One of the people I recall, who would occasionally call, John's cell phone would just start ringing, he'd pick it up, it was Joe Biden. And this goes back to when Biden was vice president. So it is a relationship that goes way back. I remember hearing the story that Biden actually loved one of uh, Meacham's book about church and state in America. I can't remember the title of it right now. But as I recall it, Biden actually Xeroxed passages from that book 
and would put it in his breast pocket and sometimes cite uh, those passages uh, at speeches he, he would give. So, you know, I'm not I'm not all that surprised that uh, Biden has come back to John uh, to play this role in the convention. But it's going to be fascinating to talk to him about it and, of course, talk to him about um, this election um, and where we are in the country right now anyway. And um, we should uh, take note that tonight is the last night of the Republican convention. Uh, the uh, president will be giving his acceptance speech, and we will be out with another skullduggery tomorrow to assess it. The only thing I would say as a preview to that speech is, this is my prediction, I would say look for uh, Donald Trump to try to shift attention uh, away from covid and toward, as he would put it, the chaos and violence and mayhem in the streets of American cities today that Democrats are doing nothing about. So, uh, Of course, of course, uh, we will be hearing that. Anyway, but let's get uh, right to Meacham. He's always got a lot to say, and um, we want to listen. We now have with us the distinguished historian, pundit, author, and our former boss at Newsweek magazine, John Meacham. John, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Danny. Appreciate it. So I got to start out. There I was last week watching the Democratic National Convention and the parade of politicians speaking giving their talking points. And then, out of the blue, there is you <laughs> popping up as a speaker at the Democratic it? National Convention. You, I know. Yeah. So how did that come about? Sure. Um, uh, Biden called in late July, I guess, and asked me if I would put the moment in historical context in remarks at the convention. I said... Yes, but I didn't want to be directed in any way in terms of what I could say or or even edited in any way. This was like you because you never wanted to be edited. Either. So uh, I drew yeah. on my lizard brain. But somehow a- you uh, imposed the hammer uh, yeah, at yeah. times. The hammer was called Clydeman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Clydeman is a, a, the embodiment of the great moment in The Godfather where they pull you back in, right? Again and again. So I was, I was honored to do it. I'll use that word. But I didn't want to be, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. Uh, we don't have to register. I live in Tennessee. So I voted in both primaries through the years, depending on the circumstance. I voted for presidents of both parties. But this is not a close call this year. This is not Romney-Obama. This is, I believe, a, an existential election. And so to me, and this is going to sound grandiose and I don't mean it to, but it was sort of a patriotic thing to do because I genuinely believe that for all of Joe Biden's imperfections, it is vitally important that the incumbent president no longer be the incumbent president. And so... Uh, the only thing I was asked uh, was to, as, as they said, uh, Biden said, define the soul of America and do it quick. And so the, the speech you saw was entirely of my composition. They did not require me to mention Biden. I built to it 
it was kind of based on a piece I had done a couple of months ago for the Washington Post, where I sort of built So just that. one follow-up to that, you yeah. sort of are portraying the election as an existential yeah. <laughs> threat to the country, really. What was and is the tipping point for you? What is it about Donald Trump that pushed you over the edge and got you involved in a partisan political convention, something you probably never imagined you would be doing? True, true. It is the persistent triumph of unreason. It is the prevalence of narcissistic, wishful thinking on the part of the president himself where facts that are inconvenient to his sense of himself and his search for continued power and prominence are ignored, pushed aside, reworked, and people are now dying because of his failure to acknowledge the role of reason, fact, science, and law. And Again, it's not a close call because 180,000 or more people are dead. I think there is going to be a significant structural shift in the job market that is going to affect millions of people going forward. It's hard to pay attention. That sounds fancy, but a lot of these jobs aren't coming back. And that's going to affect people's well-being. It's going to affect their families. It's going to affect the American future. It's going to affect the faith in democratic capitalism, a system that for all of its failings has produced, I believe, a nation worth defending. And so was it Charlottesville? Was, was it uh, impeachment? Was it the pandemic? It was a cumulative, the cumulative force not that I disagree with him, though I do, but there's a larger thing here, which is that if he sees a reality he doesn't like, he just ignores it. And in a democratic republic, in a globalized nation, that has real impact. And I have made the argument before that, and I believe, Trump is not a new thing but he is the fullest and worst manifestation of perennial American forces. If Donald Trump loses in November, that doesn't mean racism, extremism, nativism, isolationism are going away, but they will not have an ally at the pinnacle of American power for a time. And that's what history is, right? It, it's not black and white. It's, it's in fact, ambivalent and ambiguous. And I just think that I did final point on this. As you all know, I, I grew up in the South, I moved my family back here. I was born in 1969. So I don't know what I would have done on civil rights if I had been born in 1939. I like to think that I would have done the right thing, but I don't know. And a lot of folks who look like me from my part of the world didn't do the right thing. I think this is a similar kind of crisis of American identity. And at least I know I did the right thing this time. What happens to the country if he wins? I think that 
we split into a 1948-like dialectic where Strom Thurmond and Henry Wallace become the main figures and you don't have a Dewey or a Truman because the lesson for the Republican Party is going to be the Trump brand is the ticket to power and the lesson for the Democratic Party is going to be you tried it with a moderate and that didn't work so we've got to go farther left and so you end up with these polls and almost nothing in between and so the mediation capacity of that the parties have traditionally played. I mean, politics is really the mediation of conflicting interests to achieve certain solutions to certain problems for a given period of time, right? I mean, that's pretty much it, popular politics. The left, broadly put, will lose faith in the mediation capacity, and the right will have no reason to think there's any call to mediate because the way to power is to be Trump. That's the cost. John, let's talk about the Republican convention. I assume you've had a chance to watch some of it over the last few days. When I think about your <laughs> life's work and you know, when we all worked together, it was, it was journalism, although you were beginning to write history books. It was really sort of the two R's. It was uh, race and religion. And I want you to maybe give us your thoughts about the Republican National Convention through that lens, uh, those two issues. On religion, for example, they started out last night with a sort of a MAGA rabbi in whose, whose benediction um, included criticizing the social justice movement. And uh, one of the speakers also talked about Biden, I think, being Catholic in name only. Yeah. And then on race, this Lou is all happening. That, that, that great political religious commentator, Lou Holtz, said that. Yeah, that's right. Lou Holtz, right. And this is all happening uh, against the backdrop of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, the shooting in Kenosha, unrest. What was the... Republican Party, what was Trump trying to do in the way he talked about uh, those two issues uh, over the last three nights? The experience of, the, of, of Trump from 2015 until today and going forward is that unlike just about every other American president, he's not interested in persuading, he's interested in motivating, right? You see the difference there, right? He's not interested in a couple of folks who might think on the one hand, on the other hand. I don't quite know why, but he isn't. Uh, there's no evidence of it. So his political persona has been based on motivating people who are predisposed to believe in him much more than any ideas he's associated with, right? I mean, it, it is a cult of personality in that sense. And so he has managed to motivate successfully huge swaths of the white evangelical community. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book I just wrote, which we can talk about. And so there's, there's nothing in him, there's no evidence. And again, this is not, as, as Mike was saying, I'm not popping off here as kind of a DNC talking point. It's just clinically, you know, the evidence of our eyes and our reason is that at no point in this 
five-year period where he has been so dominant in our politics, has he tried to expand his base? He simply wants to solidify it and motivate it. And so what is that base? That base is white people who tend to be evangelical, who do not believe that the demographic shifts that are unfolding in the country that we spent a lot of time writing about in the, in the old days are good for America. And if you look like, like me, I'm a Southern white Protestant man. What you hear from Trump on both racial and religious grounds is that these people are coming to knock you out of the pecking order. And I believe that if the Republic survives, that the story of the age will be that Donald Trump's movement represented the clearest reaction to an inevitable demographic reality. I have a theory, this is the kind of thing that Isikoff would roll his eyes at, and Clydeman would be at least more polite and roll his eyes after he left the room. Uh, that we start were, now. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. I know we're, we're all having PTSD flashbacks here. But the country, you know, we're having this great debate about were we founded in 1619? Were we founded in 1776? Were we founded in 1787? Were we founded in 1865? My little theory is that really we were founded, as we understand the country today, in 1965. Right? So think about it. The Civil Rights Act in 64, the Voting Rights Act in 65. Remember, every presidential election in American history until 1968 took place under apartheid. Think about that for a second. And then the Immigration and Nationality Act, uh, which was a huge part of the Great Society, nobody really remembers it, but LBJ signed it, and that shifted the immigration policy in a way that helped create the demographic polity we have now. So we're only 55 years old. So no wonder there's this reaction to it. And race and religion are the most visceral ways to reach those folks. Did you get a chance to watch the Pence speech last night? I didn't actually. Yeah. Well, I gotta say, I thought it was remarkable in its kind of almost callousness you know, on, on this issue of race in particular, yeah. where, for example, when he talked about Kenosha, he only mentioned Kenosha in the context of looting and rioting. He did not mention the um, incident that sparked the protests there. Or did he mention the, who did the shooting after and, the police shooting? And, and he, did not, he did not mention the 17-year-old uh, vigilante Danny, just yeah. Mr. Black, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. actually a piece of evidence for what I was waxing on about. That's unreason, right? That's ignoring, to go to Mike's question, that's ignoring the fact. And a, a president should say, we have a crisis of violence in this country. There's unwarranted police violence, there's vigilante opportunistic violence, and yes, there's looting and lawlessness. There's a way to talk about all of it. Sorry, go ahead. Well, you know, what was striking to me, and uh, you mentioned 1968, we've talked about that analogy uh, a number of times on this podcast, but Pence's speech was a law and order speech, right? Sure. I mean, he said law and order is on the ballot. This has been a, a theme of the Trump campaign. I went back and looked at the, the Ur law and order speech. Nixon 
um, in Miami, his acceptance speech in 1968. That speech, I had forgotten this, but Nixon actually talked about building bridges uh, to the black community, to healing the racial divide. I mean, it was striking to me that a speech in 2020, that, that Mike Pence could give a speech like that that was more insensitive yeah. than Richard Nixon's speech in 1968. And it just make, made me wonder, and I want to put the question to you, how is it that we are in a moment today in 2020 when a, a vice presidential candidate can give a speech like that. I, I, the it, vice I don't president, get it. Not the, vi- the vice president, right. absolutely, yeah. And I suspect we'll hear worse tonight, right, uh, from the president himself. I think it goes back, if I may, to this idea that it's not about the country, it's about their voters. And their voters aren't, in their estimation, are not interested in the harder work of attacking the structural racism, the structural inequality that is self-evident. They don't see, I mean, the rawest political answer to your question is they don't see any percentage in it. That it's not about a suburban mother whom they've probably lost anyway. And because they've lost suburban mothers for, because, the suburban mothers are now teaching their children in their houses and everything else. You got to make that up by making sure every other person in a rural area, in a red county, you drive up your numbers with those folks. Yeah, I think I think, I think there's also no pen. I think there's also no penalty for it because we have sorted ourselves into such polarized tribes. Our media is so fragmented. There are no gatekeepers anymore. Yep. The other thing to remember about 68 is, and it it supports your point, uh, is remember Nixon barely won, right? He won narrowly over Humphrey. But when you factor in George Wallace's number, 54 to 55% of the country 52 years ago voted for either Richard Nixon or George Wallace. Right. So do we think any of those folks are going to be open to a Biden kind of candidacy? And so even though, you know, and Nixon was a complicated figure on race. He, he gets the, the, the popular version is tricky. Our, our friend Evan Thomas wrote about this, um, you know, as John Mitchell said, watch what we do, not what we say. And Nixon you know, had been supported by Jackie Robinson. And I think 40% of black voters voted for, who could vote, voted for- Nixon in the 50s had a relationship with Martin Luther King, a very friendly one. He had, he met with King at the White House. And it began to shift when the Kennedys, who were not civil rights martyrs, did the right thing with Dr. King when he was arrested in 1960. And then 64 blows it up, right? The the nominee of the Republican Party in 1964 opposed the Civil Rights Act. And so that was it. And remember the great moment Johnson's alleged to have said, I think, to Bill Moyers when he signed the Civil Rights Act, I just handed the South to the Republicans for a generation. He was wrong. It's been three. It's also true that the only Democrats who have won national elections, the only white Democrats who've won national elections 
were white Southerners. So, and, and a black guy from Illinois. So it's, it's really complicated. And um, I, I just wish, I, sorry, I want to ask you all something. Do you feel that, this, is, this goes to a question Mike asked, asked me, you all have spent your careers really being watchmen of the rule of law, right? In a totally suprapartisan way. Do you think an unleashed second term Trump is even worse on the question of what happens to justice in the country? Yeah, I mean, look, if he's uh, if he wins, he will be emboldened uh, to do all the things that he was stopped from doing that he wanted to do, you know, uh, during the first term, I would imagine. Now, you know, a lot is going to depend on who would, you know, who would be the guardrails if there were any guardrails. I mean, I think Barr has gone pretty far, but I think there are limits to how far he would go. You know, I think he still has that institutionalist grain in him uh, that would prevent him from, say, you know, giving a green light to Trump staying in the White House when he lost the election. You know, there are limits. Uh, yeah, but, I think you know, the, I think the thing to watch for the, the one norm that this president has not blown through is while he has done everything he can to undermine the judiciary by attacking judges and attacking decisions, he has not violated a court order. Interesting. He has uh, appealed as far as he possibly can, but he has never actually violated a court order. And that's what I would be looking for, because that is the ultimate guardrail. Let's let's remember that if he wins, he likely gets to replace a Supreme Court justice, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who probably could not hang on for another four years, which would give him his appointees uh, basically control of the Supreme Court. So there is that. Um, he would have a big leg up. But John, I wanted to ask you, uh, you have been close over the years to Republicans of yesteryear. You wrote a book about George H.W. Bush. Explain to us how we got to a Republican Party that has given essentially a blank check to this guy. Yeah. There was a disconnect. It, it turns out now that the disconnect that was evident in really beginning in June of 1990 and met fully manifest in the 92 election and then had its most, its greatest electoral success in 94, that that divide was more profound than circumstantial. Uh, remember, in many ways, kind of the beginning of this is George H.W. Bush, who didn't believe that what you said in a campaign particularly mattered. It was a fundamental political mistake on his part. He used to quote, he picked up a Mao quotation when he was in China in the 70s, not to worry about the empty cannons of rhetoric. And to him saying no new taxes was just he was saying it. He wanted to amass power. He wanted to be in that job. He thought he'd be better at it than the other guy. And so he said it. When circumstances shifted, he broke that word. And you had that great moment um, in 1990 when he signs the budget deal that had been struck out at Andrews 
and he's in the Rose Garden with Bob Dole and Bob Michael and, uh, you know, sort of the old order you're talking about. And Newt Gingrich goes out the other door and goes up and they have a rally for him. The House Republican Caucus, sort of the, I don't think they called it the Freedom Caucus then, but that kind of folk person. And they have this rally. And this is the triumph of Gingrichism over Bushism. Uh, I think George W. Bush was a more skillful domestic politician. And I think his evangelical credentials kept a lot of that quiet. But there's no doubt, and he would tell you this, that George W. Bush's bailout of Wall Street during the financial crisis helped create the populist energy that Trump was able to master. And so I think that you had, what, you had eight, uh, 12, you had 20 years of Republican rule starting in, in 1980. And the conservative, the real conservatives, even under Reagan, people forget this now because of St. Ronald of uh, Santa Barbara, but they weren't thrilled, right? There was that perennial tension that let Reagan be Reagan, right? And they blamed Jim Baker and uh, George Bush for the, the, the remember when pragmatists was an attack line? And they worried about that. And so to some extent, that, that's my theory about the, the presidential side of this, is that conservatives believed they had trusted Ronald Reagan and the two George Bushes, and they didn't get what they wanted. Not least because of what you just mentioned, because of the Supreme Court. Remember, they, they felt betrayed by Souter, and they believed, they felt betrayed. It was in the lizard brain because Ike had appointed Earl Warren, and they were never going to let that happen again. John, uh, Joe Biden has cast this election as uh, the soul of the nation is on the ballot. Um, uh, probably a nod to your book, The Soul of America. The um, Let's hope it works. <laughs> the subtitle of your book is The Battle for Our Better Angels. Yeah. As a historian, someone who is very much attuned to the cycles of history, the title of your book suggests that this is a winnable battle. I guess the question is, how do you see that, that battle going? And uh, if you look back in time, give us examples of other moments when we were hurtling down as dark a path as the one we are now, but were able to find redemption. Great question. It, this is a, a dorky subtlety, but you asked me, so I'm going to give you a, a little dorky subtlety. Biden and I disagree a little bit about the meaning of soul itself. I don't think it's, in, I don't think the soul as we understand it is entirely good or entirely evil. I think it's an arena of contention. In Hebrew and in Greek, it means breath or life. So to some extent, what the vice president, what the former vice president is arguing is that this is a battle for the life of the nation, which is probably a more accurate way of looking at it. But I do think that in our national life, going back 400 years or more, we have perennially contended between better angels, which is a fuller realization of the promise of equality enshrined in the founding documents, and our worst instincts, which are the tribal, nativist, racial, economic, religious, often 
impulses to protect your own and not reach out to somebody else. So moments like this, again, you know, for a hundred years after the Civil War, black people in my neighborhood here were their lives were totally circumscribed. They're not fully free yet, as we see, but they are more free than they were. We lived through in the if you had been on the Pettus Bridge with John Lewis and Amelia Boykin and Hosea Williams and state-sanctioned officers were beating you because you wanted to vote. It's pretty bad, right? There were riots. There were police shooting riots in Harlem in 64. All the, the, we, we also forget somehow, I, I think this is fascinating, by the way, how Vietnam has faded from being front of mind. But the chaos of 68 was not entirely about race. It was about the draft. And I think I'm right that it was something like we, 40 American soldiers on average died a day in 1968. A day, not wounded, died. So that was a, a large crisis. And yet, so we come through 68, there's Watergate, but then we kind of, at least in the popular mind, right, things sort of settled down right? Until Trump. I mean, my God, I mean, we were all colleagues when Obama was elected. And did, it, did you all think you were going to see? I didn't. I mean, Danny and I sat next no, to no, you no. that whole yeah. thing. We didn't think. I didn't think I would live, really. And not, not, not quite that, but I, I thought the first black president would be a Republican, you know, a, a Colin Powell type. Colin Powell, yeah. Instead, you I mean, get a you young. Would put Colin Powell on the cover in '96 when people yeah, were talking about him running. Yeah, I remember. And yet, it was a young Democrat who did it. How complicated a country is it that, in the space of the presidential oath, went from Barack Hussein Obama being our president to Donald J. Trump? That's a weird country, right? And so, um, so I like to think that. There is, to use Danny's word, there, there is a cycle here. And that doesn't mean it always works out. It requires immense care. One of the reasons, and this is not promotional, but this is just where the, the argument goes, it's one of the reasons I wanted to write about John Lewis. Yeah, we want to get to that. If people like me, look, things always work out for people like me, right? Look at me. You know, this is America. I, I'm fine. I'm a white man. And it's easy for people like me to say the arc of a moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, right? But it doesn't bend unless there are people insisting that it swerve. And that's where you get John Lewis. That's where you get Black Lives Matter. And I wish our broad, it's, it's truncated as, and siloed as, as Danny said, but the real story of Kenosha is not the looting, I believe. It's the police violence and the fact that white supremacists are opportunistically walking into that and killing people. One of the things that, I think Danny and I talked about this offline not, not long ago. One of the things that I've hesitated to say is how surprised I've been at the broad reduction in political violence 
in this era, but it's ticking back up, right? And I just think to circle back to your question, I think if enough of us say, you know what, that's not who I wanna be. And if you're a well-off person and you're only voting because of the tax bill, I think of them as 401k Trump people, pay 2% more and let's restore some kind of conversation, however imperfect, between the 20 yard lines, because Trump is not. Trump is not on the field of American governance. If anything, he's bombed the stadium and left. John, you're, so you mentioned John Lewis. The title of your book about Lewis is His Truth is Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope. How does John Lewis's life represent hope going forward in this country? I think in the same way that it represented hope when he walked into the field of fire 60 years ago and 70 years ago. Because the movement was largely successful in its objectives in real time, we tend to see it as inevitable. It was anything but inevitable. I realized in doing this that, you know, we saw John being beaten repeatedly, right? That, but he was probably in more physical danger on those 40 occasions when he was out of public view in police custody, right? I mean, he was at Parchman, for God's sake. Faulkner called it destination doom, uh, this prison plantation in, in Mississippi, Sunflower County, I think. And think of how easy it would have been for there to have been an accident, or he was trying to escape, or another prisoner did something. He used his body, and so many other people did too, to say what we're doing is wrong. What is convenient, again, to folks who look like me, is wrong. And his, he was on that bridge because of faith. It was really three tributaries for John. There was the um, experience of segregated Alabama as a, as a young boy and man. He, the only white guy he saw for a long time in his life was the mailman. He knew the signs. He didn't like going into town because of the segregated nature of it. Then there's what he heard in church, which was this message that the world could be better. And he, as a very young man, wasn't interested in the afterlife. He was interested in the this life. And then the tributary of the movement itself, which he encountered through the media. Right? He heard Dr. King on the radio. He read about Emmett Till. He saw the pictures. When he read about the Brown decision, he was excited. He sat on their broken down school bus waiting for all his white friends to show up. You know, he was all right. And none, none ever did. And again, don't listen to me. Listen to him. To the very, to the middle of June, I guess, which is the last time we talked, he, which is after George Floyd, he believed that if enough of us, if starting with the three of us and whoever else you see today, that if we put our hearts and minds in the right place, we would make progress. And he knew it'd be hard. He wasn't naive. Again, he almost died for it. But sometimes the simplest answer has virtue. And he had hope because he had seen hope realized in his own time. Let me ask you just one quick follow-up on that. I know Mike wants to get in here. 
But um, I looked at John Lewis's Twitter free feed right after George uh, Floyd was killed. Yeah. And I forget the exact words of his tweet, but basically it was about his eternal belief in nonviolence to deal with our problems. The comments were, I mean, I was astonished by it because we are all have been re- reverential when it comes to John yeah. Lewis, all a- essentially attacking him for being naive. Yeah. Yeah. That is, I am hats off for that because it amazed me because I had just finished the book. John Lewis was out of fashion starting in 1966 when he lost the chairmanship of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, to Stokely Carmichael. Talk about an inflection point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was about 15 miles away from where I'm sitting in a, at a church retreat center in Kingston. And he never got over it. He hated it. He hated Lewis. So for careful readers of this book, if there are any, it's not, this is not a, what we used to call a, a deck, right? This is not an easy deck to write about the greatness of John Lewis. There was an immense debate, most famously, of course, between Malcolm X and Dr. King. That's kind of the formulation. But John and Stokely is a huge part of this. Robert Williams, who published a book in 1962 that terrified Jack Kennedy that was called Negroes with Guns. Deacons for Defense. There's a whole interesting level of scholarship right now going on about guns during the movement and to what extent did armed Black folks help secure the nonviolent marches. It's it's really, really interesting. I was surprised. It's so interesting. I didn't read the Twitter feed, so I appreciate that. I was very surprised that in the tsunami of coverage, almost no one made the point that Lewis and King together represented kind of this, what was seen as the Sunday school, pious, DeLaud, you know, putting on their suits and carrying their Bibles. Whereas folks who tended to gather under the Black Power banner were for more wholesale revolution. These are immensely complicated questions and the borders are very porous. But there's a woman at SNCC who said that one of the reasons he lost to Stokely in 66 was that whenever LBJ called, John Lewis would send his suit to the cleaners and get on a plane. And they, a lot of people in SNCC didn't like that there was cooperation. And they had all the evidence in the world to believe that because of what happened in Atlantic City in 1964, the Democratic National Convention, which was this vast inflection point, which I'm embarrassed to say I didn't fully understand until I was doing this project. You know, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, Fannie Lou Hamer, they send up a integrated delegation against the segregated Mississippi regulars and Lyndon Johnson won't seat them because he passed the Civil Rights Act. He was worried about losing the South to Goldwater. It now seems crazy because of the way the election turned out. But Johnson's basic attitude was, I just did this for them. They need to back off. And so this is, we could have had a not dissimilar conversation at, at that point. And so it's a perennial force. I do want to say quickly, you said, Mike, just one second, because you said a minute ago that Mike wanted to get in here. I want your listeners to know this because it is a story I tell all the time. 
Dan Clydeman is the architect of one of the great sentences about the modern media era that I've ever heard. And I quote him all the time. Dan, during the Clinton impeachment, came back to the office one night and said, at least I know my lowest moment in life. And I said, we were sitting in my office, I said, what do you mean? And Dan Clydeman said, I was just on TV and I found myself saying, Geraldo, can I jump in here for a second? <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is a true story. It was, it was when they used to, like, cable TV, they would divide up the screen in yeah, four yeah, yeah, boxes. Yeah. All right. All right. Be, and on that note, I'm jumping in. Okay. <laughs> All right. John, if you um, have been watching uh, the Republican convention, one phrase one heard quite a bit in derisive tones was cancel culture which yeah. speaks to a perception of the intolerance of the left and the woke brigades. And one manifestation of that is the taking down of statues. Um, actually, it, if you go back to Trump's infamous Charlottesville comments, that's what he was reacting to, that the fine people who were those white supremacists were trying to defend the, the keeping up the statues of Robert E. Lee. So I want to ask you about one that, you know, cuts close. You wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Andrew Jackson. Yeah. Across from the White House in Lafayette Square stands that uh, bronze statue of Jackson on horseback. If Native Americans start demanding that Andrew Jackson's statue comes down, would you uh, uh, approve of that? At this point, yes, probably, uh, and here's why. My test of statues on public land in places of clear veneration is were you devoted to the project of a constitutional journey toward a more perfect union? And so, and then, and if you were not, if you were Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson or uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, God help us, you do not belong on public land because if you had won, there would be no 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. There would have been no country to project force across the Atlantic and the Pacific in the 20th century. If you wanted to end the experiment, I think that I don't, it's not my job to tell you what you do at your house or in your yard or a church or a school. That, that's for those institutions. But on land that we pay for and that holds a common meaning to all of us, I think that that has to be the test. So once that test is checked, are you Jefferson, Jackson, Washington, Madison, whomever, then you have to make a balance, you have to make an assessment. And I think what I would rather see in Lafayette Park, if it were possible, would be addition as opposed to subtraction. Why can't we use this energy that's been created by the, the, the kind of culture you're talking about to commemorate figures from our national story who have not been commemorated. Why is there not a statue of Harriet Tubman there? Why is there not a statue of Frederick Douglass there? Why is there not a statue? The real person to put there would be Alice Paul, who managed during the suffrage campaign, the first direct civil rights campaign directly addressed to a president of the United States because they surrounded, the suffragists surrounded the house so that Woodrow Wilson would have to see them when he left and came back. So again, this subject fascinates me because 
you know, the reason um, Native Americans and a lot of other people would object at this point to Andrew Jackson was Indian removal. He forcibly expelled Native Americans from their ancestral lands and leading through the um, Trail of Tears and uh, all the misery and death that that caused. And, you know, I th this kind of like goes to the issue of our understanding of history. When Arthur Schlesinger Jr. wrote The Age of Jackson, he didn't even mention no. Indian removal. And that had won the Pulitzer Prize, I think, in 1946. You, obviously, writing in uh, the 2000s, uh, dealt at great length with Indian removal. And I, I can't think of a better example of how our, of how our perceptions of our history evolve over time. And that is a good and great thing, right? Because the utility of history, and this is what I, I believe, there are historians who believe that it has to be studied for its own sake in a clinical way, and, and I understand that and appreciate that argument. But I believe that there's a moral utility to looking back. I'm not alone in that. Thucydides thought that. So, you know, I, I have some support. Thucydides was great when he filed Perry items, by the way. Uh, <laughs> they were not as long as the Peloponnesian Wars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the thing about Arthur is fascinating. Here's a, another dork point. The place where he mentions Indian removal, Native American removal, is to attack New England evangelicals who were against it. Because Arthur hated religion and politics more than he was worried about Indian removal. It's a great, it's a great little insight. Look, Jackson, my anxiety about the cancel culture is this. And my argument about Jackson has been consistent for more than a decade now. Andrew Jackson represents the best of us and the worst of us. In terms of the best of us, he kept the union together. And he gave us 30 more years to form what Lincoln would call the mystic chords of memory in order to keep a nation together that for all of its imperfections, I think we would rather have been a continental nation than have the South allied with Britain and creating a Caribbean empire. So a slave empire, right? So that's the redemptive part about Jackson. One of the things I want us to be careful about is Jackson was a figure of the nation. He did not single-handedly commit the grievous wrongs he did. He was able to do it because he was a democratic, lowercase d, figure. And so if we take individual figures, if you will, to the cross, we can't let, our, we can't let that replace our national understanding that all of us have a role to play in either the good that happens or the bad that happens. And so Jackson may have been on the extreme edge of the mainstream of his time, but he was on, he was in the mainstream. There was some- Of course, it's worth mentioning that, that, that Trump has uh, seen Jackson as a uh, role model of sorts. He sees himself as in Andrew Jackson's image. You wanna to speak to that? Can I tell you, let me tell you a quick story about that. It's a true story. It's like the Clydeman Geraldo story. So in March of 2017, Trump announced that he was coming down to the Hermitage to Nashville, in Nashville, where I live, and he was going to embrace Jackson. And so I was sitting here and I was thinking, well, I should do something about this, right? So I wrote a letter, an open letter to the president saying, if you're going to embrace Jackson, don't just embrace the crazy parts, right? There, that he, he 
believed in the union. Da, da, da. And I sent it to the local newspaper, the Nashville, Tennessee, and, and very generously, the paper of the day that Trump arrived was in, only had my letter on it. The front page was just the letter. It had no effect, whatever, of course, on, on Donald Trump. The next day, true story, I'm walking into lunch and my phone rings and it was George H.W. Bush. And he'd spent a lot of that winter in the hospital. And so his staff was giving him stuff to read to keep him, you know, entertained. So he read this thing and he called up. He said, how you doing? I said, I'm fine, Mr. President. How are you? He said, I'm fine. He said, I read your letter to Jackson. And I thought, oh, shit, the old boy's losing it, right? He thinks I'm writing letters to dead people. So I said, well, thank you, Mr. President. Um, you know, actually, that was a letter to Trump about Jackson. And without missing a beat, the old man said, yeah, Jackson will pay more attention. And then he hung up. Right? And he of the joke. He wanted to make it. And then he said, see ya, click. That was it. Um, yeah, he, yeah. Presidents see as they wish to be seen. I have a whole riff on this. You know, when Kennedy looked back and said, when Kennedy was at the Nobel Prize dinner and said, this is the greatest gathering of talent, except for when Thomas Jefferson dined alone, what he was really kind of saying was, aren't I like Thomas Jefferson to think to invite all of you here, right? So people, you know, the, the portraits they hang in the Oval Office matter, right? It gives you a sense of what they're thinking about. And Jackson, at some level, appeals to Trump. I'd be honestly surprised, and this is not a, a facile remark, but I would be honestly surprised if he really knew the difference between Stonewall and Andrew in, in any serious way. Steve Bannon created this, right? I mean, he, he sort of invented the Jacksonian thing. After the election, it didn't really come up then. But um, it's a great question, Mike, and it's something we have to confront. You know, fascinating thing, you know, there's an argument Abraham Lincoln was a white supremacist, right? I mean, that's an important argument, particularly in black intellectual circles. We all know about Jefferson's problems, George Washington. So I, I do think, and I offer this as a test, is first, were they for a process of amendment and adjustment that gets us to a better place? And then second, on balance, what should we commemorate of theirs and and just try to be, my, my theme of the day is just try to use reason, use data, make assessments. Don't, don't, don't just lead with the gut. My last question for you is, uh, you know, we saw you at the um, Democratic Convention. Uh, you've explained how you got there and the, the, your view about the existential threat to this country. Will we be seeing more of you on the political trail or the virtual political trail? Uh, will you be lending uh, advice to the Biden campaign? Will you be working with them at all? I don't think you're going to see me in any in political settings. I don't I'd like Biden to win. So I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, think, I don't think I'm exactly at some point. You, you, we have to look at your negatives, John. Yeah. And you can't the, the, the Meacham approval place, rating. Right. The only places that would want me would be, you know, uh, nursing homes, and because of COVID, you can't go. So it's hard to see what what that would be. No, um, I have talked to the vice president from time to time about thematic stuff, and if if, if he calls, I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to talk. But um, no, I, I'm not. I'm not an official of the campaign in any way. I, um, you know, I. 
am a very concerned citizen who will try to help where I can. But, um, you know, my day job is, I'm getting ready to go do it, is to teach at Vanderbilt University and, and uh, write books and keep my three children from tearing each other apart. Last question for me, John. Just going forward, how much of a hold do you think Donald Trump and Trumpism has on the Republican Party? Fabulous question. It seems pretty strong, right? There's no contrary evidence now that there's much of a Republican Party except for Trump at the moment. If he is defeated- Look, look at the platform. There is no platform. It's just we enthusiastically support it's Donald a, Trump. It's a, it's, a, it's a loyalty oath. It's not a platform. I think it's a total, a total grip right now. But remember that scene in, was it Dave? The grip of, uh, the grip is total, but there's that scene in Dave, remember, where uh, everybody's cheering the guy and then he loses and he's alone. So that could happen. That could happen. Hope it does. Going to say it's total until he loses. Well, anyway, John Meacham, we thank you for joining us on Skullduggery. You've uh, elevated the uh, level of discussion from it's uh, <laughs> it's a it's you it's normal so it's a, back it's and a low, forth. Michael? It's a low it's a low bar, but, low but, bar. but you you exceeded it by a lot. <laughs> so well, anyway, glad to see you all. Thanks for joining. I appreciate us. the time.